Eagles Entertainment. Eagle Eye in the Sky is fueled by Gatorade, the official sports drink of the Philadelphia Eagles. You're listening to the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast. Now here's your host, Brand Duffy. That's right of the week, and we're scouting San Francisco as the Eagle on the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade, continues. I'm Fran Duffy, and as always, I think we've got a great show for you here on episode number 274. At the top of this week's show, we've got Chalk Talk, where I chat with Ben Fennell about the Eagles' week four opponent on Sunday night football. San Francisco 49er time. We'll talk about the key concepts of Kyle Shanahan's offense, what we'll see from them against this Eagles defense, and some big matchups and stats for this game at the top of the show in Chalk Talk. After that, Ben and I will go through our scouting report segment when this week I wanted to focus on one of the blue chip players on this 49ers team and the impact he could have in this game. That player is linebacker Fred Warner. We will talk all about him, how much of an impact he could have in this game. So we'll cover all of that in scouting report, but that is not all because at the end of today's show. I also caught up with Eagles defensive tackle Javon Hargrave to talk about his history as a player coming up from high school, college, and obviously to the NFL. Before we get there though, a couple of things I just wanted to make sure we hit on as a quick reminder. The best way to throw us your support if you're enjoying these podcasts on a weekly basis just do us a favor. Jump on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Leave us a rating. Leave us a comment. If you leave a question, we will answer it here on the show. I know I'm going to answer a couple here uh, at the very end. And guess what? By that point, we are tapped out. So if you've got questions about this Eagles team, about any upcoming matchup, jump on Apple Podcasts, leave a question, and we will answer it on the next show. So this is, the, this is the time. Hit pause right now. Go on. Leave a comment, and we will make sure we answer it. If you've got a question, we'll answer it on the very next episode of this podcast. Also, uh, I mentioned Eagles game plan. And before I get to my chat with Ben... I want to give a little bit of a tease to a segment uh, that we had on this week's episode here where I caught up with Eagles defensive line coach and run game coordinator Matt Burke to talk about the Eagles defensive performance on Sunday. Here's a small bite from a segment that we call Tape Study presented by Chickies and Pete's. Well, joining us this week on Tape Study presented by Chickies and Pete's, Eagles defensive line coach and run game coordinator Matt Burke. Matt, welcome to the show, man. Thanks for having me, Fran. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, let's go through. There were eight sacks, obviously, for the defense in Sunday's game against Cincinnati, and I thought we'd just break down a couple of them here. I thought there were a lot of interesting things to kind of talk about from a pure X's and O's standpoint, and I want to jump right in here. We're going to go to Derek Barnett's sack in the second quarter. We talked all week last week on Eagles game plan all about the Cincinnati Bengals and those empty sets, and I couldn't wait to see what your guys' game plan was for that, and we, we kind of get a sense of that here in the first half. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was an extensive part of what they do. And I think Barr was really good at kind of having a clear picture, reading the field and kind of getting it opened up like that. So we knew our just general game plan with the empty stuff was to kind of give him different looks. Like we felt that they were going to empty to make him more comfortable, let him see everything. Everything declares quickly. So we had a lot of different checks and, and sort of pitches to just try to keep them off balance because they they did a really good job with their whole empty game plan. So this was one of the looks that we got into where we walked both those linebackers up and those A-gaps just to try to force some things and try to feel how they were going to handle that look. Obviously, 
you know, we're showing a sort of six-man pressure, if you will, with the four down and the, and the two linebackers. So we're going to go now into overtime. And this was one of my favorite sacks of the game here, Coach, because to me there were so many different elements that made this play work. And, you know, you guys are in man coverage on this play. And uh, one of the, my favorite terms that fans love to hear about, the green dog blitz, where a guy from the second or third level in man coverage is able to kind of read what's happening and insert himself into the pressure. Just kind of take us through what we're going to see here on this play. Yeah, sure. You know, and obviously you guys saw from the game where, you know, Jay Mills had you know, obviously a couple sacks or a sack and a half and some pressures and some hits. So that was a big element of what they were doing. You know, we're having some production in the in the pass game, obviously up front. So it becomes a game where they start bringing extra blockers into the front here. So the tight end comes over and as you play it on here, so it's play action, and essentially what they're trying to get here is you can see there's essentially a double on Malik, double on BG, double on Fletch, and really that back has the option to chip out on Derek, so it could end up being a double on Derek with the tackle on the back. So they're trying to get four hands on each of our guys up front and, and to you know slow that down. And then obviously, you know, a lot of times these play action plays are deeper shots. So, you know, buy some time for that quarterback to set up and stretch those routes down the field. So Jalen's covering that tight end there. So your uh, your green dog may be more appropriate for the uh, green goblin. But you know, he sees as soon as that tight end makes contact with BG right there, he adds into the rush so he puts himself in as as in a rusher saying hey guy that I'm covering is blocking let me kind of bring that in there so as you see the receiver feels him coming and ends up coming off BG so now again BG ends up with the one-on-one -on -one, whereas they're trying to get double teams on every guy here um, because of Jalen's aggressiveness to get into the rush it frees BG up to get a one-on-one -on -one and, and uh, is able to beat the tight end again here in protection. To me, it's just one of those things where, like, everyone sees the, the final outcome, but if it weren't for Jalen Mills' uh, ability to kind of insert himself and now BG understand, hey, now I've got this one-on-one, -on -one. I've got to win whenever I've got that opportunity, uh, it's just kind of cool to see all those different elements come together here on this play. Certainly, and, and honestly, even all the, the other three guys, I mean, that's dirty work, you know, they're doing in terms of squeezing the pocket and fighting those double teams and just sort of making there's no open step-up lanes and stuff. So, yeah, that was a, it was a nice team sack there. Obviously, BG deserves a lot of credit, but got some help from the rest of the crew. It was a fun conversation there with Matt Burke. We broke down a lot of stuff. It was a trio of plays, three sacks from this game, including a couple um, of sacks that just have a, a ton of layers to them. So uh, from that entire segment, make sure you go check out this week's version of Eagles Game Plan, which will be up on PhiladelphiaEagles.com and the Eagles mobile app on Friday. Or if you're local to the Philadelphia area, you can always check it out Sunday morning at 10 a.m. on NBC10 Philadelphia. All right. Talking about Eagles game plan, again, let's bring in the guy who is so important to the production of that show each and every week. That is Ben Fennel. Let's dive into our chat now in Chalk Talk. Let's get down to business. It's time for Chalk Talk. Well, back again for another segment of Chalk Talk here on the Eagle on the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade, my friend, Ben Fennel. Ben, uh, look, we'll jump right in, man. We did a lot of work this week getting ready for Eagles game plan, which uh, will air later this week on PhiladelphiaEagles.com. If you're listening to this, uh, it should be up on Friday, or, you know, late morning, midday, something, something like that. If you live in the Philadelphia region, uh, it will air on Sunday morning, 10 a.m. on NBC10. Uh, just getting ready for the show, Ben. Um, you know, we, we had a lot of talks about hey, what are the topics with the 49ers? What are the things we wanted to cover? And, you know, defensively, uh, we wanted to talk about linebacker Fred Warner. I don't think we need to jump in too far on him right now because in our next segment on Scouting Report, I know we're going to talk a lot about Fred Warner. 
you know, nuts and bolts of it. We both love him. Uh, one of the best linebackers in the league. Certainly a lot of fun to study. So I don't want to spend too much time here because I know we're going to talk about him in the next segment. But on the other side, plenty to discuss uh, with this 49ers team. You, know, you look at uh, this Kyle Shanahan offense and what their identity is, what their staples are. Uh, we know, you know what he can bring to the table, all the different backfield actions, living in base personnel. We talked about this a little bit with Greg Cosell the other day. And then uh, you know, also Kyle Juszczyk, one of your favorite players in the NFL, and obviously George Kittle. And I think you know, we all know what George Kittle brings, but I think when you have a guy like Kyle Juszczyk, who we didn't really talk too much about the other night here on the show, and I feel like you and I can have a really good discussion about him, what that does for an offense and how that can really help to uh, provide some information to the quarterback before the snap when you have a versatile fullback like a Kyle Juszczyk on the field. Yeah, absolutely. You know, both Juszczyk and George Kittle fall into my two-way disguise category of player because when they're on the field, they aren't giving away offensive intent. They're dominant run players. They're dominant in the pass game. They're tough and they're versatile, which makes it very tough for defenses to understand how they're trying to be attacked on a down-to-down basis. So if the Niners can constantly come out in 21 personnel, which they lead the NFL in, and that means it could be a running back use check or maybe two running backs back there, uh, and then that one tight end, just becomes very tough to match up because you can run so many different offensive schemes out of that. And having versatile players like use check, like George Kittle, really is the motor oil for that offense. And they may not always be producing in the stat sheet, but I promise you, it's their ability to be two-way players that it lets that offense tick. Yeah, it's a it's a great point, and not only that too, but you know, you look at it, you talk about it from a defensive standpoint, as you mentioned. Uh, you know, look, defenses and offenses as well they're all working on tendencies. You know, people talk about analytics and football analytics have been present in football since the, ever since they were been able to put it on film because uh, you know, you start putting together cutups and you start working on tendencies. Hey, when it's this down in distance and they come out in this personnel group and line up in this formation, they tend to go with this kind of concept or this kind of play, or it's a run, not just it's a run or a pass, but it might be a, a high, low concept in the middle of the field. It might be a screen. It might be this, it might be that. When you have a guy like a, a Kyle Juszczyk, when you have a guy like a George Kittle, that's where that versatility, and as you mentioned, you called them the two-way disguised players. When you have those that kind of versatile chess piece on an offense, you can line up George Kittle in line with Kyle Juszczyk in the backfield, you know, in, in a, a, we'll say a 21 personnel set, and you might be running ISO lead. You might be running, uh, you know, two back power. You might also be running a three level stretch. You might be running Kyle Juszczyk free down the scene with George Kittle on the flat or vice versa. You could be running a number of different things. And that's not to mention, you know, oh, now we got 21 personnel and oh yeah, now we're going empty and we're doing all different things there. Like, you know, with how they move, but you know, it just, it creates a really sense of, in, a sense of insecurity for the defense because Usually those guys are just kind of going through the Rolodex. They're like, all right, down a distance. I know what the situation is. I see the personnel grouping. Okay, now I'm already thinking. I'm already processing what could be coming. When they line up a certain way, there's a long laundry list of things that they could be doing out of those sets. And that's why you have a guy like Juszczyk, a guy like Kittle, and it really kind of makes the entire offense go. And there's a couple coaches grouped into this coaching tree philosophy now. You have Kyle Shanahan, Sean McVay, Matt LaFleur, now in Green Bay. But spinning this back to you, Fran, what, do you, what is just your elevator speech difference on Kyle Shanahan's offense and Sean McVay's offense? Mm-hmm. Because essentially they're cut from the same cloth, but they operate just a little bit differently with their personnel and some of those tendencies. 
Yeah, and it's something that we talked about a little bit with the the Rams back in week two. Uh, historically, you know, obviously it's a short sample size, but you know, Sean McVay when he's been the head coach, they have been heavy, 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 heavy eleven personnel. Like you know, they when they went to the Super Bowl, what was that? I mean, it was like over ninety percent eleven personnel, right? I mean, they lived in three receiver sets. Now we are starting to see them come back a little bit. You're starting to see them do a little bit more twelve personnel. They're playing with Higby and Everett on the field at the same time. But when then when you look at Kyle Shanahan, he does a lot with 21 with 12 22 they have the two for all the things that we were just talking about and not only that you know there's again there's not one right way with McVeigh the thought is I want more speed on the field with Shanahan it's more I want you to you want to be in sub package defensively I want to keep you in base, so I'm going to put my base personnel uh, players out there you're going to have two backs two tight ends you know we're going to and I'm going to mix and match but now I'm going to try and take advantage of linebackers in space. I'm going to try and make those guys wrong and, and make you guys defend more areas of the field. So that, that's, I guess, is the, the key philosophy. But you see the, the, the backfield actions, the screen game, all that stuff. A lot of it is the same, and they're, they're cut from the same cloth from that standpoint. But uh, to me, that's the biggest difference. I don't know if, if you had something else in mind as well. Yeah, I think Shanahan is an interesting hybrid, and I know this is going to sound like a huge statement because I'm going to choose two very impactful <laughs> coaches, but he's a little bit of a hybrid of Sean McVay and Andy Reid because Andy Reid is so multiple, yep. and I think that's where Shanahan has differentiated himself from McVay that like to come out in the same personnel, the same look, the same initial action, and just having that foundation, the Niners did that initially when uh, Shanahan first got there, but have become so much more mul- multiple, so much more diverse with the personnel groupings, literally doubling the amount of power and gap runs from year one to year two with Kyle Shanahan. Much more of a diverse and interesting run game that it's starting to mirror the Chiefs offense in the way they attack on a week-to-week basis and the versatile players and some of the interesting offensive designs. I think it's kind of an interesting mix of the two. Obviously, that's a great combo. Sean McVay, Andy yeah. Reid, a little bit of both. That sounds pretty good, but it's just a very interesting mix on how he designs that offense. And, you know, I remember when the Eagles were playing the 49ers, I mean, I think it was his first year, Kyle Shanahan, his first year in San Francisco. Uh, you know, we were doing a, a, an Eagle Eye column. You were, and we were watching film. We're breaking down that offense. And, I mean, you went back to his days as offensive coordinator in Houston, in Atlanta, in Cleveland, in Washington, and we saw the same staple concepts. Like they ran the same, you know, it was like four or five different plays. We saw, you know, the, the tight end throwback. We saw the post cross off play action. We saw, uh, you know, a lot of those same plays over and over and over again. And I still think you, you still see them in, the, in that modern, uh, in, in this current state of this offense. But to your point, I think there's a lot more multiplicity there, and you're seeing a lot more creativity with the backfield actions, where guys are lined up, certainly with what they've done with Debo Samuel last year, with Brandon Ayuk over the last couple of weeks with these receivers as runners. Um, it's, you know, it, it's a whole lot of window dressing and just getting the ball into their playmakers' hands and allowing them to uh, pick up first downs, move the football. Yeah, I think Juszczyk and Kittle really do kind of mirror Travis Kelsey and Anthony Sherman in Kansas City more than anybody else in the league. Now, I think Kelsey's a little more pass game upside. Sherman's more of a through-and-through fullback. Juszczyk, much more versatile. And obviously, George Kittle, a great inline tight end there. But uh, how they use those players in Kansas City is very similar to what we're seeing in San Francisco. 
So I want to try something a little bit new this week before we get into like our matchups and big stats and stuff. I almost want to like just empty my notebook on like little buzz items and you'd like literally like interrupt me. Stop me if there's something that you feel is like uh, we should like expand on. Um, you know, at quarterback, we, we talked about Garoppolo and Nick Mullins the other day uh, with Greg. I don't think we need to dive too deep in the, into there. Uh, running back, I feel the same way. I mean, we know the kind of ta- talents they've got there. I know, that, you know, there's been pieces. I want to say Albert Breer talked with, Oh, I forget, it was a former Shanahan quarterback. And one of the quotes that's always stuck with me, um, every single running back that they acquire when Kyle, with Kyle Shanahan has to impact as a pass catcher. And again, that goes back to what we said about check and, and with Kittle. With all these positions, you don't know if it's going to be a run or a pass as this guy, because those versatile skill sets. And again, with the receivers they've acquired, these are all guys that, you know, Brandon Ayuk and Debo Samuel, Hey, we can give them the ball as runners. We, and obviously we can impact, you know, use them in the passing game as well. All that's it's, it's all with that same idea. To me, the blue chip players on offense, obviously George Kittle, uh, Trent Williams at left tackle has been, I mean, he's, I wonder what he was going to look like after the year off. And, and, you know, he just hadn't played a lot. He looks outstanding on the, on the left side. So um, to me, like those are the blue chip players. Uh, the well, most Fran, t- spending this to the yeah. skilled players out there and who you're game planning for on a week to week basis. They've, yep. The Niners have had as many injuries as anybody in the NFL. Debo, I think is coming off IR. I Tevin so, Coleman yep. just went to IR. Kittle's been out for two weeks, but just give me a yes or no. Are these guys starting on anybody's fantasy team last week? These are the no, players that made no, the, biggest, no, no. <laughs> the biggest plays for the Niners last week against the Giants. Kendrick Bourne, starting anywhere? No, not Jeffrey, on a fantasy team. Jeffrey no. Wilson? No. Brandon Ayuk, no. you know, second Maybe. game in. Yeah, probably, yeah, yeah, not, yeah, probably, Ross probably not. Ross Dwelly, 20-yard gain. No. Trent Taylor, 20-yard gain. No. Jarek McKinnon, 26-yard gain. The only downfield completion of the season. Some people might have been, but no. But you get what I'm saying about yeah. this Niners offense. It's like yeah. uh, next guy up. It doesn't matter who you are. It's tough to game plan for these guys because it's so versatile. It's so multiple and it's so interchangeable. I don't know if anybody on the Niners would ever start for somebody's fantasy team, even going to a Tevin Coleman or even when Debo gets healthy. Obviously, George Kittle deserves it. But it's just really interesting the fact they've had injuries and then all these guys get to step up and start making plays in the offense. Yeah, and they've just been they've been very very creative. You talk about the injuries, you know, guys that have been banged up in and out of the lineup. They've been in 11 personnel 35% of the time, 36% of the time uh, so far this season. I mean, that's a, a crazy low number and you talk about 21, 12, 22, they're mixing up personnel usage and, and they're they're just finding ways to be able but to It's move like no Kittle, no Debo Samuel, no yep. problem. We'll scheme open guys. It's like yep. Matt LaFleur last week, no Devontae Adams. It's okay. Let's run our offense. Next guy up, and we'll scheme some guys open. You know, through our offensive design. Yeah, no question. And then you go to the defensive side, and this group they they've lost a lot of players too. You lose Nick Bosa, you lose Solomon Thomas, who uh, you know isn't the level of Nick Bosa. Certainly, you lose a Richard Sherman, and what he means not just on the field but uh, off the field. And you had a bunch of guys that were banged up. That whole secondary, I think their top three corners uh, were out of this in this past game against the Giants. Mosley got hurt mid game. Akella Witherspoon was out going into the game. So uh, you know their top three outside corners are gone. Can I just say real quick one thing? Like Jason Verrett playing and getting his first action. I don't know if you've got the numbers in front of you in terms of like how many snaps he's played over the course of his career. You and I both loved him coming out of TCU. A lot of people did. He was a first round pick for the Chargers. Injury riddled career. I, I was kind of interested. Like, all right, he's going to hit. He has to play a lot, you know, with, with his injury. How is he going to look? He looked so good. He looked really, really good. And that to me, like that's one of the, that's one of the best stories in football right now. And it's been one game. He's played, what did he play? Like 60 snaps the other day, 40 snaps the other day. But he looked awesome. And that's uh, to me he's something really to follow. He's been great, and yeah. he was injured as a rookie. Then that big Pro Bowl year as a sophomore, 
then injured, injured, injured in 2019. And he played 45 snaps and his return to action uh, literally played 67 snaps in three years dealing with all those injuries. But when he's healthy and on the field, So literally one of the best cornerbacks in the NFL. We just have no idea what the type of player we're getting after this multitude of injuries. But what he put on tape on Sunday, really impressive. He looked like he's back to form. Kawan Williams is the the nickel corner. He's a nice player. Uh, Verrett, really, really impressive, though, on the outside. Now, Emmanuel Mosley, he did leave the game uh, this past week. I have not seen what his status is. I think they were waiting to see. We're recording this Wednesday midday. Uh, I believe they were waiting for Wednesday's practice to to finish before really giving an extra report. So something to kind of follow. They brought back Deontay Johnson, who was a former 49er draft pick. He got the the majority of the snaps opposite Verrett. Uh, up and down game for sure, right? you know, in his return uh, to the field, to that 49ers defense. I talked with Greg the other day, um, you know, about just the transition. Robert Sala uh, is the defensive coordinator, primarily, you know, cover three, comes from Pete Carroll. Oh, that's what they had been heavy change to more quarters look and Greg and I talked about this I'm interested to kind of get your thoughts why do you think that we're starting to see a little bit more quarters uh, around the league and then we'll talk a little bit about the strengths and weaknesses of quarters coverage and kind of draw it up a little bit for our listeners you know it's a really good question because we've been seeing it more particularly out of some of the traditional single high teams Seattle Atlanta and really being tendency breakers I'm not sure if maybe they're trying to have more safety involvement in the run Um, It also provides less communication and pass off assignments when you're in that quarters coverage, how you're playing that four deep cover four. You know, it's an interesting conversation. I think there's probably different reasons for, you know, uh, different strokes for different folks on a week to week basis. Um, But just kind of explaining the cover four, that means you have four deep, deep players protecting each a quarter. But the interesting thing is the depth of those players. They're not way back like a cover three or a cover two. Typically, those middle safeties are sitting at about 10 to 12 yards because they have run keys and run responsibilities, so they have to get nosy and keep their eyes in the backfield looking to fill the run downhill. Um, So we see a lot of attacking those safeties, being a little more shallow, especially off of play action, um, where you could get them to take a step or two up for those run reads and then try to hit something over the top. We've seen countless, countless uh, attacks uh, on that coverage over the years, particularly on early downs, trying to get them in run looks and then going down the field. But uh, yeah, it's kind of interesting trend we've been seeing to start the season here, friend. Yeah, and I think it's it's also interesting. You know, you talk about different ways to be able to attack quarters. Uh, Greg made the point the other night that you know you're starting to see these quarter that the teams that are playing with with heavy quarters that the cornerbacks on the outside are playing with more man uh, discipline, with more man technique and more man responsibility. So the the safeties are still playing with as you know a cover four safeties, but you're seeing a little bit more man on the outside. And the reason why that's important, you know, you look at the big plays that have been given up against cover four uh, over the course, you know, they're really, you know, I don't know, as long as you and I have been watching film together, uh, a lot of it has to do not just with the run fakes, but, you know, what offenses do with the number two receiver. Because, you know, with the, as, as is the case with every zone coverage concept, there are rules for all these guys. And so if you are a safety in play, playing quarters, playing cover four, if the number two receiver, the slot receiver, if he attacks at a certain depth, it turns into a man-to-man coverage, basically. So I, th- I believe, Ben, correct me if I'm wrong, I believe if it's like a, somewhere between like 8 to 10 yards, if that receiver looks like he's working vertically, you're not playing that middle part of the field anymore. You are now essentially playing man-to-man against that slot receiver. So if you run a, let's say, a vertical route, like a deep post route from your outside receiver, 
Your corner is going to play him with outside leverage, funnel him to his safety help. But if that safety is now you know, being taken away by a vertical route, quote unquote, from the number two receiver, well, now there's no help in the middle of the field. And now you've got a, a safety or you've got a post route uh, running wide open for a touchdown. The corner's got his arms up saying, where's my safety? The safety's looking at the corner like, yeah, I've got my, my man. How come you don't have your man? <laughs> the, you know, the, I guess the thought is with the man coverage concept on the outside and the quarter safety still playing quarters, that kind of eliminates the, the threat of those kind of miscommunications on the back end. Yeah, and I'm having so many ideas and thoughts. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here. I think the right. quarters is also a counter to all the three-by-one sets we see around the NFL. And just telling that one X receiver in your corner, the press man, lock that player, and then allowing that other safety to key the number three from the backside allows you to still double number two. And quarters coverage essentially is a zone match. After two and a half seconds, it turns into man coverage. Yep. So it allows them to still clamp on late in the down, have kind of man-to-man principles, and still kind of being a uh, you know shaded to the strength of the offensive formation. A lot of these three-by-one sets that we're seeing around the NFL, if you want to play a cover two or even a cover three to three-by-one, you're kind of putting too many bodies where there's not enough mm-hmm. offensive bodies. And I think quarters just allows you to key the three by one a little bit more. I don't want to get too far in the weeds here with oh, that's uh, a good you point. Know, coverage principles here, but I, I'm just trying to make sense of why we're seeing it more. No, that's a, that's a very, very good point. Um, you know, just staying schematically here with San Francisco. Uh, the other thing I think a lot of people think of, uh, you know, the Pete Carroll tree. Oh, it's, it's not a lot of blitzing. It's the four man rush, especially you think with this the defensive line. Oh, they, you know, they don't need to do a ton. They just, they, they, you know, they just let those four guys get after it. no, Third down, they are they are going to line up in a lot of different fronts, a lot of different looks. They're going to come at you from different angles. They're sending linebackers, they're sending nickel corners, they're sending safeties. Um, you know, they they have line up in these five over five looks. They line up in tilted fronts. They run a lot of different stunts as well with the you know with guys. Even if you, you know you have a Nick Bosa in there, you think, oh yeah, he's okay winning one on one. No, like. They're going to loop him inside. They're going to use him as a picker. They're going to do all kinds of things with these guys. So it's going to be a big assignment game uh, for this Eagles offensive line as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's get to um, some of the matchups uh, we like in this game. And for me, one one-on-one matchup that I think is going to be really fascinating to be able to watch uh, is going to be Fletcher Cox, who obviously had a huge game. This whole Eagles defensive line just had a huge game uh, against the uh, Cincinnati Bengals going up against the right guard, Daniel Brunskill. Now, this is a matchup one-on-one, you know, if it's third and eight, you like that matchup for Fletcher Cox. The thing that the Eagles have to avoid is what happened in week two against LA. And we talked about the kind of the similarities there between, you know, a Sean McVay offense and a Kyle Shanahan offense. If San Francisco is able to stay ahead of the sticks, they're able to stay on schedule and they're having success on first and second down. And it's, third and two, and you've got the jet action, you've got the play action, you've got all those different factors, that's going to negate that pass rush. That's going to slow up Fletcher Cox a little bit. So it'll be up to the Eagles defense to try and keep San Francisco behind the sticks a little bit in this game. And now you can have some of those matchups win for you, especially on that interior three where you've got Brunskill at right guard, Ben Garland is in at center, and then you've got Lake and Tomlinson at left guard. I feel like those are the matchups you can really kind of try and see if you can take advantage of in this matchup. And listen, Brunskill is really athletic for an offensive lineman, played the right tackle position for nearly half the season for the 49ers last year on the way to the Super Bowl, filling in for Mike McGlinchey. But this is not a good matchup for Brunskill. Brunskill's a little light in the pants, the play guard. He's about 280 or so. Came in the league at about 275, 260 or so. So he's a little light in the pants, a little bit like 
the what we saw Fletch do to Billy Turner late in the game against the Bengals. I could see a little bit more of that. So the Niners know that. They're going to make sure Brunskill has help. They're going to make sure they keep Fletcher Cox on the move, trying to keep him going laterally rather than flying up the field exactly. and really yep. blowing up a lot of that action in the backfield. No, that's a really good point. Is there a matchup uh, that you will have your eyes on in this matchup? I'm going to go with an interesting one here because I'm going to kind of go with Kyle Shanahan mm. against our linebacking core. I'm expecting to see a lot of TJ Edwards, yep. a lot of Nate Gary. So what I wrote down in my notes are Edwards and Gary versus backfield action. And this is a Niners team that leads the NFL in shifts and motions, not only before the snap, but into the snap. There's a lot of moving parts as the quarterback uh, is taking that exchange from center. And there's a lot of eye candy, a lot of moving parts, whether it's jet motions, orbit motions, return motions, which are when a player starts one direction and then counters back to where he came from, like we saw Kyle Juszczyk do last week leading the way on a really cool end around to Brandon Ayuk. So there's a lot going on in the backfield. You have to have your keys down. You have to know what your reads are and not get caught up with all that eye candy because he throws a lot of it back there. And it doesn't matter who's that quarterback. This is the foundation, or even at receiver or at running back, this is the foundation of their offense. And it's a lot of smoke and mirrors. And maybe it's not as much substance as most teams in the NFL, but it can really put guys out of position. This is the, that, to me, that is the big key to the game, honestly. Uh, you know, you talk about like the matter. I know I talked about Fletcher Cox and Brunska, but this is one of the pivotal matchups in this game. And I'm really glad that you brought that up because um, it is absolutely going to be important. And, and I'm thinking they're going to keep us into that base defense like they yep. do often with that 21 personnel that they lead the NFL in with use check. That means I think we're going to see a little more TJ Edwards. Yep. And I'm excited for that prospect because he's a very instinctual player. He has very good intelligence, football IQ, typically knows how he's being attacked, plays a good physicality, a little bit limited as an athlete, but I love what he has between the ears. So I'm really excited to see TJ Edwards out there on a down-to-down basis. And it'll be a little different than what the Rams would do. Similar type of offensive style with those jet motions and eye candies, but less 21 personnel. So that'll keep us out of that sub package and more into that heavier defensive package. So let's talk, bring back to uh, Eagles game plan a little bit. Is there something that you wish we had gotten into the show this week that um, is going to be pivotal to this matchup that, uh, you know, obviously we, we weren't able to sneak into, you know, the first or second block of the show? Yeah, actually, Fran. And I think it was a long game. It was a tie. There were a lot of plays to watch. There were a lot of narratives and tones of the game, obviously, when you have a tie going, you know, a whole extra quarter. But what the Eagles did at the end of the first half and then the end of the fourth quarter, those ended drive halves generating touchdowns were enormous and maybe the most productive, efficient offenses the Eagles have put up in 2020 on both those drives. And there's a lot of cat and mouse philosophies on how do you play defensively in those situations. But when you got to have it in those two-minute drills at the end of the half, end of the game, I thought that was just a huge kind of confidence booster for the Eagles. And I think you have to look at those two drives moving forward as that confidence and that fuel that, hey, we can move the ball and click when we're playing in rhythm, playing fast. I think there's some things to kind of pick and choose from for what they did. 
And to your point, you know, Doug Peterson talked earlier this week about, you know, possibly using tempo a little bit more. Uh, so maybe that is something that we will see. It's a very good point uh, on your part. To me, um, it was one of the things I brought up earlier, and that was the, the just the, the 49ers pressure scheme. Uh, that was something that uh, we had gone back and forth about, oh, do we use one of these third down blitzes? We ended up settling in on, on Fred Warner. But, uh, you know, looking at all they do from a pressure standpoint, uh, it's going to be really, really important. The Eagles have struggled in protection, you know, for the most part of these first three games. Um, they have not held up well enough to keep Carson Wentz upright. Uh, that's going to be a, a big, big part of this game. You know, I mentioned that it's going to be huge for the Eagles defense to uh, keep San Francisco behind the sticks. The Eagles offense needs to be in as many third and twos, third and threes, third and fours as possible in this matchup. If you're getting a third and 10, third and 11, they're, they're bringing something and you, you don't know where it's coming from. You don't know if it's the right, the left, inside, outside. If it's a, if it's a second level defender, third level defender, if it's a stunt, they got to be ready for, for the, the entire gamut uh, of pressures from the San Francisco defense. The other guy, too, that we didn't really talk about, we haven't talked about him yet. What have you thought about Javon Kinlaw, man? He, he's been impressive on film. He sure looks that part in 99. Uh, really looks yeah, like the Forrest Buckner, just wearing right. that number and playing a similar role. Uh, he's long. He's strong. He's heavy-handed. Um, really fun player. Will flash at times. I think he's still kind of finding his timing down and how he's being attacked and, you know, when to shoot up field and when to hand fight or when to kind of anchor down and uh, just kind of assessing NFL run schemes on a down to down basis. He looks a little lost at times, but he has some really impressive tools that he could turn it on in the drop of a dime and make a, a splash play or disrupt a run action or blow up a running scheme. Uh, he's flashed that certainly on a, uh, you know, a quarter to quarter basis, not really a full-time player just yet, yep. but with some of the injuries they have, I'm sure they're expecting him to kind of kick up and ramp up that play count. Yeah, they've certainly had to lean on him a little bit more over the last couple of weeks with the injuries they've had on the defensive line. He's just a consistent knockback. He's just a handful to block. I mean, he's, he's Fran, there's people that bother me on this D line, like Kerry Hyder. This guy does not look no. like he should be a productive NFL player. He's like a 285-pound defensive end, wears those long sleeves. His jersey looks terrible on him. This guy just wakes up in the morning hunting quarterbacks. He doesn't look like he's going to be a good, productive player, but he just keeps getting jobs around the NFL, whether it's Detroit, Dallas, now in San Francisco, and he's productive every time he's out there. It's a really fun player to watch. Just a crafty player, high motor. He's always chasing the football. Um, no, he, he is one of my favorite like kind of role players to study uh, in the league. Let's get to uh, some numbers here, Ben. I always ask you for your favorite stat or two of the week. Uh, what do you got for us here against San Francisco? Yeah, I'm going to rifle off a couple here. So we already mentioned the 21 personnel leading the NFL at over 40%, not just with Kyle Juszczyk, but also the two-back pony stuff. You're going to see maybe, you know, Jeff Wilson and McKinnon out there together, Raheem Mostert and Jeff Wilson and some of those pony sets. Other thing we mentioned, the shifts and motions. Over 75% of the offensive plays, including a shift or a motion. That's over three-fourths. Really, really impressive. Very balanced offense, shotgun under center. About 55.9% shotgun. So kind of flirting at that 50-50 ratio makes it really tough to kind of figure out what they're doing. That means they could still work in the play-action boots and certain schemes from under I wonder center. How that, I wonder how that changed uh, with the change of quarterback with when Garoppolo was hurt. If they went by, I didn't look at what uh, what the ratio was with Mullins this week. I wonder. If yeah, that's a good point on a week-to-week together. basis. And if maybe one of the quarterbacks feels more comfortable with right. one of those schemes. The interesting thing as well, Fran, this is the best offense on third and long. That's six or more yards are converting 47% of the time. 
That's number one in the NFL. The yeah. other interesting thing is they've only completed one pass downfield all year. Yep. So this isn't a team attacking over the top. Yet when they get into those third and medium long situations, they feel comfortable converting. And I just think it's kind of an interesting philosophical kind of uh, meeting of the minds here. The fact that they don't push the ball down the field yet can generate some chunk plays when they need to. And I think that's just really speaking to the offensive design and what Shanahan does uh, when he needs that kind of seven to 15 yard chunk play. And I think that, you know, going back to the comparison between what the Eagles are going to see this week in week four to what they saw in week two, you think of that game defensively, it wasn't like it was bombs away, like balls going over corners heads. I mean, you had the 28 yarder to Higby on the throwback. Um, But outside of that, it was Goff rolling out of the pocket and hitting Robert Woods for 11 or, you know, Cooper Cup for 17 or uh, this guy for a catch and run for 28. You know, there, there weren't a lot of, you know, deep balls going down the field. And I think that's the case in the San Francisco offense as well. And now with that being said, though, don't come checking the receipts after the game, though. I know they (laughs) want to get Brandon Ayuk down the field. And as he gets involved more and more in the offense, he's likely going to be that shot play guy. So you could tell last week of the Giants involving him in the run game and the pass game was really one of the featured players in the offense last week against the Giants. So if he does get behind the Eagles defense this week, I know it's in their plans at some point for him to be that vertical threat. Mm, it's a, it's a very good point. And, and that one downfield catch was actually Jarek McKinnon lined right. up in the slot and ran a corner route. So you never know who's going to go deep and don't sleep on Kyle Juszczyk going deep either. No, out, out of the backfield too, running down the seam. Exactly. You know, we've, yep. we've seen him running sail routes. I mean, you, you know, he's going to do all of that from the backfield. Um, all right, Ben. So we'll put this match up to bed. Uh, last thing before we uh, wrap up this segment. Around the league, anything else from uh, from studying teams uh, from around the NFL that you want to kind of empty the notebook on? Yeah, three things really fast. I'm just going to okay. have a little three-pack each week. Number one, dominant, dominant run defense. We know the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, they're the best run defense last year. They're picking right up where they left off this year. Vita Vea, Sue, Shaq Barrett, really fun group, JPP. But the Pittsburgh Steelers, what they're doing on that defensive line – Nasty, nasty group. Bud Dupree, TJ Watt, Stephen Tuitt, Cam Hayward, the resurgence of Tyson Alawalo, Devin Bush, nasty front seven. Both of those teams are way out in front with run defense. Number two, how about Jeremy Chin for the Carolina Panthers? Mm. Number 64 overall pick in the second round, an absolute steal, playing tons of snaps, one of the more productive players Uh, in the NFL, not just rookies, but in general, and playing a variety of positions on the line of scrimmage, linebacker, safety, tons of tackles. I think he's so much closer to an Isaiah Simmons level of prospect than a lot of us thought. Then the third, how about the Green Bay Packers in the run game? Second in the NFL in rushing yards per game, taking that pressure off of Aaron Rodgers, keeping him playing in structure. And I think that's a really scary proposition. The Packers with a dominant run game and Aaron Rodgers and some guys on defense to get after the passer, really dangerous formula they got brewing up in Green Bay. Yeah, that, that, uh, that note about Pittsburgh, we'll be talking a lot about them next week right here on the show. Obviously, the Eagles playing Pittsburgh Steelers uh, in week number five. We'll see. Uh, the news came out this morning uh, that the Tennessee Titans and Pittsburgh Steelers game was postponed. No word yet. Uh, there's been some reports that it could be Monday, maybe even Tuesday. Uh, so we'll see uh, what happens with the Pittsburgh Steelers here in week four. Ben, let's get to our next segment here. It's time now. Let's talk about some uh, Fred Warner in scouting report. Dim those lights. We're headed to the film room for the scouting report. 
All right, Ben. So let's talk about a player that you and I were both high on uh, coming out of BYU, and that's linebacker Fred Warner. Um, he was, I believe, a top 30 player for me uh, coming out of college in 2018. I loved his film. Um, in fact, I, believe, I went back and looked the other day because uh, we were talking about him. I had Dallas Goddard a few slots ahead of him. I had da- Dallas Goddard as a top 25 player in that class. Uh, Warner went a few, I think he went uh, like 15 or so picks after Dallas Goddard did. Um, so I thought both, play- both teams got really good steals uh, in the area that they were able to get him. Um, Warner was just one of my favorite players, man. And, and real quick, I'll got, kind of buzz through uh, some of my notes on him, and I want to get your thoughts uh, on him as well. Three-year starter, but the last two years of his career were spent as an outside linebacker in a 3-4. And he would line up off the edge, but he would also line up to, uh, in the slot. He'd be stacked in their nickel set. So he, was, he lined up all over the field. Um, and at times, just the way he moved, he looked like a big safety. You know, I mean, this was a great athlete, fluid, explosive. He covered a ton of ground in a hurry, extremely comfortable in space. He could close and, and you know, make plays in the open field. It was really, really impressive. Uh, from an instinct standpoint, read things pretty quickly, you know, from the slot, especially in terms of run pass. Uh, did not back down from contact, though. He was very aggressive in the run game. Not a true stack and shed player, but he would keep his hands tight. He'd shock a blocker and bounce off and find the football. He was an explosive, violent tackler. We still see that uh, on tape here with the 49 and a really experienced underneath zone defender. He could drop to his landmark with ease, get his eyes back to the quarterback. Uh, was used in man coverage against slot receivers and did not have any issue uh, with running backs or tight ends, and I didn't think that would be an issue for him in the NFL. Hand-eye coordination to finish at the catch point was really productive throughout the course of his career, not just in the run game with TFLs, but to a bunch of plays and coverage, a bunch of pass breakups. Two of his seven interceptions went back to the house for touchdowns. My concerns, a little bit on the smaller side, you know, not really small, but a little bit on the smaller side. Uh, wondered, you know, could he get overwhelmed by bigger blockers in the NFL? Uh, would he be able to add weight and get a little bit bigger to be a true three-down player? And I thought it would be a little bit of a projection to see him as a pure three-down player right away just because he was used in so many different ways. Overall, my final statement on him, though, At his floor, I thought that he would be a dynamite special teamer, but I thought he was much more than that. Elite athlete with the kind of physicality that I look for at the linebacker position. He must prove that he could transition into a true stacked role to be worthy of drafting high, but he was an NFL player. Physically, a three-down NFL starter with high upside as a Will or a Sam. He, uh, he's reached that upside, Ben, as we talked about with Greg earlier this week. He is one of the top two or three linebackers in the NFL, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. He's a really fun player to watch coming out of BYU in that really deep linebacking year in 2018. But, yep. uh, you know, just to echo everything you were saying there, yeah, size, speed, awareness, really good matchup coverage player, the zone instincts, good tackler, not only in space, but in a phone booth between the tackles. The number one trait I had written down, highlighted, underlined, bolded, was the ability to beat blocks with his hands. Yep. That's against tight ends, pulling guards, tackles, receivers. He had long arms. He shoots them tight, will stack and shed. And I love that ability. You have to be able to fight for yourself in the NFL. We see so many linebackers in college with free access, free lanes to ball carriers, and then they blow up the ball carrier in the backfield and flex on everybody. Those plays do nothing for me, friend. You're going to get guards up on you in the box. You have to be able to fight for yourself, create that space, get off of blocks, and still be a player to drag down that ball carrier. So echoing everything you've said about him, some of the issues, high pad level at times. Sometimes he would take tackle uh, tackles a little high, a bit of an arm tackler, some eye violations. And again, just kind of question that balance of overall athleticism versus overall play strength. He was 235, but didn't look like he really had that core bulk 
more of a lower body strength guy, long arms, uh, that I just worry he might not have that strength in the core and upstairs there. But just turning this back to that 2018 group, Fran, I'm going to put you on the spot here. If we had okay. to do a redraft, not a full draft, but a redraft of the linebackers hmm. between, you know, uh, Tremaine Edmonds, Vander Esch, Rashawn Evans, Darius Leonard, Roquan Smith. Where does Fred Warner fit into the pecking order of that group? I think I'm taking him tops of that group. And it would be, I think it would be, if I had to go in order, I think I would go Warner, Darius Leonard. Maybe, I guess, I'd probably Tremaine Edmonds after that. And then Leighton, then Leighton, Vander, Leighton Vander Esch after that, just because of the injury. You think that's yeah, fair? The injuries have been tough to evaluate Vander Esch. He's the one that ain't nowhere. But I thought Warner one, Darius Leonard two was yep. pretty set in stone on my sheet as well. Yeah, it's a, it's, it was a really, really good group, um, certainly in 2018. Um, and that's reflecting back on it. After yes. we've seen three years of, of all these players, not saying that was our pecking order at the time. Obviously, Roquan was pretty bona fide linebacker one uh you know so no issues there yep no question hey, hey listen uh the other big thing and we didn't really talk about this at the top with warner the reason why it's so important in this game and we really highlighted this this week in eagles game plan you know we talk about like going in with the with the eagles as banged up as they are you know zach Ertz, miles sanders greg ward guys that if they're going to be uh impacts here uh in the passing game for carson wentz those are the guys they're going to rely on with these injuries to uh to jalen rager and we don't know what the deal is with Deshaun jackson at this point and dallas goddard obviously out of the lineup you need those guys and those are all players that fred warner has the ability to impact because of the way that he plays in coverage he can make plays on backs he can make plays on slot receivers he can make plays on tight ends so that's why he's such an important player to discuss going into this game because He's the player that you have to have circled and you have to have an idea of where he is on every single snap if you're dropping back to pass. Yeah, absolutely. And I just love that Fred Warner is a through-and-through, three-down linebacker. And just one last note on his rookie campaign. Only three players played 1,000 snaps as a rookie defensively. Derwin James in that incredible rookie year, I think he was an all-pro safety. Jesse Bates, who we covered last week in our uh, profile. And Fred Warner. So the fact to show up as a rookie, third round pick, thousand snaps, never coming off the field, three down linebacker, the production right off the bat was really, really impressive. Yeah, there's a bunch of really impressive coverage plays of Fred Warner in Eagles game plan this week. Greg Cosell did a great job breaking that down. Ben and I were trying to narrow it down to like one or two plays. We're watching, we're like, we can't get rid of any of these. We're throwing them all. <laughs> so Greg kind what of was, what was like the surface statement we had coming away from some of those plays? What did I just keep saying after we saw the play? He understands yeah. what? He understands how the offense is trying to attack them on any given play because he knows, and we talked about this earlier with the with offenses, right? The offense knows, okay, this is you know the or the you know a defense knows, hey, if they line up in this set, this is you know how, what they're going to try and do. He knows on every single play, hey, we're playing cover two. They know we're going to be playing cover two. How are they going to try to attack cover two? They're probably going to run, you know, this concept or that concept. And if I see at the snap the, this initial movement, I'm running to the catch point. And he's that he is always around the football, and that it goes back to that without question. Um, it's a it was a really good point uh, on your part. Well, Ben, uh, this was fun, man. It was a, a re- it's going to be a fun matchup. We'll be breaking it all down next week here on the Eagle Line the Sky podcast with Greg Cosell, and then you and I will be breaking down Eagle Steelers a week from now. Thanks so much for joining us once again on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast, fueled by Gatorade.
Before we continue with this episode, I've got a question for you. Do you know that four years ago, 100 million eligible voters did not participate in the general election? That's the same size as the entire U.S. television audience for the Super Bowl. That is crazy. That is way too insanely high, and it's something that we as a country need to fix. Important decisions that affect all of our lives are made not just by the presidential election, but by our local and state elections as well. So if you don't vote, then those decisions that affect you every single day, they're going to be made by voters who may not share the same values and opinions that you do, and those priorities that you do. So if you don't vote, you give away your voice, you give away your power. It is so easy to get registered to vote if you're not already. It's just as easy to double check to make sure that you're registered to vote. And I know because I just did it this weekend, just a few days ago, all I did was text EAGLES, E-A-G-L-E-S, to 26797, and you can either register to vote right there, or you can check your registration status. It is so easy. It's really fast. And most of all, it's extremely important. Please, it's all of our civic duty to make sure that all of our voices are heard. Get out and vote on November 3rd. Great stuff from Ben, who you can follow on Twitter, just like I do, at Ben Fennel underscore NFL. And while you're at it, I'm at EaglesXOs. That's where I post all the podcasts I'm a part of and all of our X's Nose content that we produce at PhiladelphiaEagles.com. And you know, I greatly appreciate everybody that promotes this podcast on all forms of social media. That's one way to support the show. But the other way is to go into Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, leave us a rating and leave us a comment. I wanted to give a shout out to somebody who did exactly that. Football Matt 784 left a five-star review saying, how much they love the breakdowns and all the guests that we bring on the show every single week. Matt, thank you so much for your uh, rating. Thanks so much for the comment. Thanks you for your support and being a longtime listener. Real quick, before we wrap up this show, I told you I was going to catch up with Eagles defensive tackle Javon Hargrave. Let's get to that interview right now. Well, welcome to our Bob's Discount 101. Really, really excited to welcome in Eagles defensive tackle Javon Hargrave. Javon, thanks for joining me today, man. Uh, no problem. Happy to be here. So let's talk about you as an athlete. Uh, and I want to get back to young Javon Hargrave as a kid. What was your first love in terms of like playing sports? What, what, did, you, what did you like playing most uh, growing up? Well, I was uh, big on basketball. You know, um, basketball is kind of the first thing you can play growing up because um, football, you got to start in the third grade. And basketball, you start kindergarten, first grade, and things like that. So basketball was kind of my first love. And, you know, I had dreams, aspirations of being in the NBA before the NFL. You had, you had a, a big high school career, right? I, I had read that you had turned your uh, your high school team. I think you guys went, you had like seven wins your sophomore year, and you go to the state <laughs> title uh, your senior year. What, what was that like? Yeah, that was a transi- transition, uh, transition, my bad. But um, we, had a, we had a new coach, new players come in, a couple young guys contributing, and I don't know, we – we struggled my sophomore year, then a lot of us just grew up and got it rolling my senior year and ended up making a run to win the state championship. A lot of, uh, you know, you talk with, you know, whether they're college coaches recruiting high school players, you talk with uh, college or NFL scouts when they're looking at college offensive linemen, defensive linemen. You're looking with the big guys with the basketball background. Are, are there some of those things that you've carried with you from the hardwood to the gridiron? I think my quickness, uh, yeah. me and some of my moves I do, I believe, came from basketball. Uh, you know, like defensive slides and just moving with some of the quicker guys kind of got my feet right. Um, Some of my, like my uncle, he used to tell me all the time, don't quit basketball because basketball is going to benefit for me for football. So that was kind of my thing. 
I've seen you work that Euro step in a little bit. I remember you had a sack against Jacksonville a couple years ago where you like you stabbed outside and you were able to cross face and get uh, on the edge of the guard. <laughs> you got you bring a little bit of that to the game for sure. Yeah, it's like my crossover. <laughs> did, you, did you have handles or are you more like uh, you know back to the basket? Nah, I ain't had no handles. I, was, <laughs> I, I did. I was mostly back to the basket. I, I could dribble a little bit, but I went out there trying to cross nobody over. So going to football, when did you know you were going to be a defensive lineman? Was it like immediate, like as soon as you started playing? Man, it's crazy because um, defensive line always came easy to me. But, of course, growing up, I wanted to play running back or I wanted to play linebacker. But I remember like just fourth grade, I was getting off the ball and just running past everybody, making tackles. But i go back and try to be running back in middle school, and it wasn't really working out. Then I think in high school, I went back to defensive line, and it just took off from there. Did they only play on one side, or were you able to play two ways in high school? I was playing two ways in high gotcha. school. I played. I, I played about. I did. I ran the ball. I did. <laughs> I wouldn't let them put me on the offensive line. I couldn't stand right. the offensive line. But I played a little tight end and running back okay. and just defensive line. So you go to South Carolina State and you have a great career. There was a huge. There was a game. I believe you had was it six sacks against Bethune Cookman. Yeah, it was. I, I, so I read an interview you did where you said that uh, that was a game that changed your life and really kind of put you on the radar. Can you just talk about that and, and why that was such a big moment for you? I think um, that year I was having a great year um, and I was just coming off like a MCL sprain or something like that, and I didn't even start that game. I, I was coming off the bench and you know just. Not even knowing if I was going to play a lot that game. And I don't know. I just ended up getting like two or three in the first half, and it took off from there. And after that, I had all the scouts coming to my school, and it just kind of started blowing me up. You went to the, the Shrine Bowl. You had, a, you had a big week down there. You went, I believe you were, you were a late addition to the Senior Bowl as well, right? Yeah, I was. Uh, what, what was that whole experience like leading up? Because obviously you go to the Shrine, you're maybe like kind of feeling like you're under the radar. Then you go to the Senior Bowl. Uh, did, things kind of, did you kind of feel like the momentum was starting to build for you? Yeah, it was, it, was, it was a great experience just trying to, you know, coming from a small school to starting to play against all these big boys. But like the Shrine Bowl, it was great. Um, I killed that. Yeah. And I, I think I came to the senior bowl and it's like <laughs> I seen how the speed just kinda changed okay. from uh, yeah. you know, playing in a smaller level and going to the big boys, but it made me adjust and catch up and um, rise to the occasion, rise to the level. So I believe you were named this spring as by the NFLPA as the top player uh, from an HBCU in the in the NFL. What, what does that mean to you to, when you're one of the top players in the league coming from the HBCU, um, you know, and you know, all those schools? What does that mean for you? Uh, that's, a, that's a great feeling. Like, I just remember coming out. Um, I, I, was at, I was at that same banquet uh, with, like, Doug Williams and them, and they were just telling me I had to kind of carry the tradition. tradition and um, if I did bad, it was going to make everybody else look bad. So I, uh, I always kind of try to carry that chip on my shoulder. And I just love this. Uh, I just love my HBCUs and love probably know everybody who came from HBCUs. So we got some dolls, and it was a real exciting moment when I won that award. I mean, some of the best players in NFL history and certainly some of the best players in the league right now. Did you cross over with Darius Leonard uh, with the Colts? Were you guys in there together? Yeah, that's my boy, yeah. <laughs> we used to compete like crazy. We played two years together. Okay. Well, two or three. Well, he was there three years with me, but we played two years together. But, yeah, that's my boy. We <laughs> we used to get down together. I believe it. Hey, let me ask this question. So, uh, Deion Sanders, obviously a huge name, gets named head coach at Jackson State. Does that help in your mind, like, 
put HBCUs even on the map for in terms of like high school recruiting and trying to get some of those best players to get back into the HBCU level? Yeah, that's um, that's crazy because we were just talking about that in the locker room, just how much that might change the culture. And, of course, who who's a DB, a big-time DB who wouldn't want to go and play for Deion Sanders? So I think you're going to start to see a lot of uh, big names start to transition because, like you say, it don't really matter where you go. Um, you can still make it to the NFL just off of all the talent we got in the league right now. So. I think that's that's a big move for HBCUs. No question. I'm excited to see what what that you know means for them moving forward into the future. Last question for you: What's one element of playing defensive line that you know us on the outside, fans, media, we don't necessarily think about, but you know you know that it's really really important and it's key to your success? It's get off, man. Especially yeah. playing in this system right now is getting off the ball. Uh, that's been my big thing from you know just coming from YFL just being able to beat everybody off the ball. So, yeah, if you don't know, just look at the fastest person getting off the ball, and that's a that's a big thing. Well, no question. Well, Javon, thank you so much, man, for joining me. Stay safe, stay healthy. Best of luck here this Sunday. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thanks so much to Javon and all of you out there for your continued support of this show and all the rest of our podcast offerings on PhiladelphiaEagles.com. All that being said, I think that'll do it. Another show in the books here on the Eagle Eye in the Sky podcast fueled by Gatorade. For everybody here at the Novacare Complex, I am Fran Duffy. We'll talk to you next week.